thanks for joining us again for another episode of the Spatial Web AI podcast. Today, I have a very special guest. Uh, welcome, Brian Ponch Rivera. Uh, Brian is the founder of AGLX Consulting, the co-host of the No Way Out podcast, and the co-creator of the Flow System. So welcome, Brian. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Denise. Great to see you again. Uh, it's been a few weeks. Uh, glad to be here. And uh, hopefully we can have some uh, entertaining conversations today. Who knows what we'll talk about? <laughs> yeah, uh, it's funny. I was actually just saying to you that conversations with you are a blast. So yeah. I'm so excited to have you here today. Um, so, Brian, why don't you start out just kind of giving a little bit of your background for our viewers, uh, let them know who you are. Sure, we could start out where I was born, and no, I'm not going to take you all through that. Uh, I'll, I'll just start with some of the basics. Public school education, so be careful uh, of what I say in this podcast. Um, University of Colorado graduate, uh, an MBA, uh, did that while I was working uh, for the military full-time. I did 16 years in active duty military service in the U.S. Navy, uh, 11 years in the Navy Reserve. I'm still a Navy Reservist today, where I worked for her uh, Defense Innovation Unit. When I punched out of uh, fighter aviation at 16 years, so I got to fly Tomcats off of carriers. Uh, I actually flew air shows. I don't know if you knew this, but I got to fly air shows and all around the U.S. That was a lot of fun. So uh, oh, Max, cool. yeah, Did Max flips and stuff. Everything, yeah. I actually, I actually proposed to my wife from the uh, cockpit of the F-14 here in Virginia no. Beach 20 years ago. Yeah, so that was cool. that was pretty cool. We'll talk about that in a few months uh, on the 20th anniversary of that. Uh, anyway, 16 years active duty, punched out, went to the reserve, uh, the Navy Reserve. Uh, did some pretty cool things with them. And like I said, I'm with Defense Innovation Unit now as a reservist. But on my civilian side, I, I got lucky. I'm like the Forrest Gump of what I call Agile or you know, the Forrest Gump of Agile. Uh, what that means is uh, randomly, I got to meet some really fantastic people inside the Agile community, so software development. And uh, one of the persons I met was Jeff Sutherland, the creator of Scrum. And he said to me, you need to start a consulting firm that stomps out all the bad Agile in the world. I'm like, I don't know what that means, but I'll do it. So that's what we did. Uh, that's where we started. Uh, we wanted to stomp out all the bad Scrum and Agile, meaning uh, at the end of the day, it really comes down to interactions uh, for building team performance and flow. Um, did brought a lot of lessons over from the military. Uh, met Nigel Thurlow, met John Turner. Uh, short story long, got together on a weekend in, in, uh, down in uh, Plano, Texas, around Plano, Texas. Uh, sketched out what we call the triple helix, uh, which is complexity theory, distributed leadership, and team science. Built that on top of the of the Toyota production system and focused it on the customer. And what that is is now known as the flow system. Um, and uh, that was created about three or four years ago now. Book's been out since 2020, right right at the beginning of COVID. I saw uh, your so TED talk. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. And that yeah. TED talk was kind of fun because I, I was out in Budapest um, where uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi is from. And Mihai Csikszentmihalyi is the person that kind of coined the, the idea of flow uh, from psychological flow. So to go into that uh, part of the world and, and, and be there to talk about um, design for flow, uh, where I borrowed a lot of lessons from complexity theory and the constructal law to talk about flow and flow systems, uh, that was pretty fantastic. So that was uh, my first opportunity to get up and do something like that. Uh, and, and again, that, that that was in Budapest, where um, uh, unfortunately Mihai Csikszentmihalyi passed away since since then. So uh, you know we we lost a uh, a very important person in the world of flow there. But yeah, so that was awesome. Uh, we created AGLX uh, eight or nine years ago to stomp out that bad agile and Scrum. Uh, we're doing more than that today. Uh, everything from safety to innovation to design. 
getting into artificial intelligence, uh, fifth generation warfare, you name it, uh, you know, psychedelic assisted therapy, different modalities on uh, creating some type of flow, whether it be in a team or individual. So that's, that's what AGLX is doing. And then with the podcast, we stood up the podcast about seven months ago, kind of as a let's, let's focus on John Boyd, all the awesome lessons that uh, he gave us um, uh, through his OODA loop and all his work behind that. And let's see uh, where that goes. And, and that's really snowballed into what it is today, where we have some fantastic guests coming on board, including folks from Active Inference Institute, uh, which is Daniel Friedman. Uh, we had uh, Adrian Bejan, um, Dave Snowden, Gary Klein. Uh, other neuroscientists include uh, Dr. Enos Hippolito. So we are becoming an attractor, it seems like, because John Boyd's work is nothing more than a synthesis of all these um, disparate disciplines brought together in what could potentially be a unifying model for how we understand reality. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, this is the stuff you're working on is, is fascinating to me. Um, so <clears throat> let's kind of take some of this apart here. Um, sure. what, why don't you dive just a little bit into what is the flow system? What made you develop it? Yeah. So uh, th there's something known as the Agile Manifesto. It's uh, principles and values that were written 21 years ago-ish in, uh, in Utah. Uh, Snowbird, Utah, it was. Um, it, that got a movement going where everybody wanted to create agility in their organizations, right? Uh, they called it agile. We call it agility. What we've known from fighter aviation and military is it's really about the interactions, how you work together as a team that matters. It's not the way you work. All teams, by the way, go through the process known as plan, execute, assess. That's a team life cycle. Uh, many of the frameworks that are out there are, are kind of like that, but they just focus on the framework, not the actual interaction. So you think about this and we get into the spatial web a little, little bit later on, it's the interactions that matter, not so much the quality of the agents. So we knew this from fighter aviation. Team science happens to be tightly coupled with fighter aviation. It doesn't come from there, but it, 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 it kind of evolved there um, in what is what we call crew resource management. So that's, you know, how do we communicate? It's uh, really built around decision-making, assertiveness, uh, mission analysis, communication, leadership, adaptability, and situational awareness, right? All these things are pretty important when it comes to creating teams. So um, the flow system is really a reflection of that connected to some leadership lessons from the military and, and elsewhere and something kind of unique, and that's complex adaptive systems thinking, right? So uh, we, we, we're borrowing a lot of ideas from the Kinevin framework, uh, Kinevin being the house of multiple or the place of multiple belongings. It's a Welsh word. Um, Kinevin was created by Dave Snowden. Uh, I've been able to work with Dave. Like I said, I was kind of like the, the um, Forrest Gump of Agile. Uh, I got to meet these fantastic people. I've worked with them over the last several years. Uh, and Dave's been one of my mentors and, and happens to be one of our company advisors at the moment. Uh, so he's really guiding us through what complex adaptive systems theory means. And I think from recent readings and active inference and um, uh, the free energy principle, and, and even in autism and, and uh, psychedelics, they're looking at complex adaptive systems theory more and more. So uh, a team, by definition, is a complex adaptive system. It's, there's emergent properties that happen from the interactions. And what's happening in Agile right now is they're not focusing on what matters, and that is the interactions. They talk about it, they just don't know how to do it. So we created the flow system as a system of understanding so we can understand context and have these different tools, methods, ideas, concepts, whatever it may be, and use them in the right context, right? 
So, so it's, there's no one size fits all approach to creating agility, creating innovation, creating safety, or creating resilience in an organization. It's all concept, context dependent, right? So you don't wanna go copy what everybody else is doing or what they say they're doing, because that's not how it works. Uh, so we're, we're, we created a system of understanding to help people along. One of the main components of that is John Boyd's observe, orient, decide, act loop. And that uh, we, we may talk about here in a few minutes, but that really led me to complex adaptive systems thinking, thinking cybernetics, psychology, um, biology, you name it. Uh, 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 you know, uh, cy I brought cybernetics already, uh, systems thinking, uh, quantum physics. Uh, so a lot of things that underpin what's going into the free energy principle on AI or active inference uh, are there already underneath John Boyd's OODA loop. So that's uh, hopefully I, I answered your question there on what the flow system is. We can use it from uh, teaching kids to um, teaching adults how to work together as teams to helping them understand their external environments. They can develop better strategies uh, or a strategy to, to dominate or win. Uh, we can use it to help organizations understand safety, safety critical environments, uh, you name it. But it's, it's again, it's, it's an evolving thing, right? It's a place to start. And uh, since we, you know, created that that concept, the flow system, um, so much uh, we have learned so much in, in the meantime, including the connection to or potential connection to the free energy principle, uh, substrate theory, construct the law. Uh, there's all kinds of new things coming out there, category theory, all these awesome things that are emerging from in my view, starting the flow system and where we are today. So uh, that's why I'm here, I believe, is, is to kind of learn more and, and maybe help others open their eyes to see what's actually going on around them. Yeah. So, okay. So you said it's context dependent. What kind of context? Uh, so let's let's try this. So uh, let's take a team, um, a, a group of people working together on something. So using an analogy, if you look on a spectrum, on the left side of the spectrum, it'd be a, um, a swimming team right? A low level of task interdependence, or maybe it's a wrestling team, right? Same thing. You go out and wrestle their own match and they come back in. Mm -hmm. It has a low level of task interdependence. On the other side of the spectrum is uh, a highly dependent activity uh, where the interdependencies are there. And that game would be something that looks like rugby. It would look like soccer. It would look like basketball. Okay. You get the reallocation of resources going on there. People are playing offense and defense. You're not substituting people in like you would in football. That's kind of in the middle of the spectrum here. So that's the context we want to look at when you go into an organization and go, hey, do you need to use a team framework like Scrum, a very rigid one, or do you just need to know how to work together as a team and make work visible, right? So, uh, so that's the con one of the contexts we look, look at, right? Just, just to kind of get people mm -hmm. thinking about their context when it comes to teamwork. When it comes to understanding their environment, um, that's absolutely critical, right? We want them to develop a map, if you will, of their external world. So think about this. We need them as a group of people to create an internal map of their external world. And that's how we develop strategies, right? If you can't do that, you can't, everything you're talking about is not a strategy, you, you know? So you start thinking about where we can make the connection to, um, the free energy principle on active inference. I was just going to say, yeah. now yeah. I see the connection. <laughs> yeah, so you need to have that internal model. And that's that's what the OODA loop tells us as well. So that's it's context. Context matters. Um, nothing is context. Well, I, I can't say it. Uh, Context-free isn't uh, it's something we promote. It's like it, your context matters, right? Right. Yeah. 
Okay, very cool. So then um, you mentioned the podcast and mm -hmm. uh, you've had me on your podcast. I That was such a fun experience. It was a great time. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's called the No Way Out Podcast. Why? What is that name? Where does that name come from? No Way Out. Okay. So John Boyd had five briefs that he gave over 1500 times, right? He, he didn't write a, or he didn't um, publish a lot. He published one thing. That was it. I take maybe a couple other things, but none of his briefs were published. He just was always out there uh, standing in front of people and, and explaining what he knows about the world and getting them to see things a little bit differently. So No Way Out is the original name of one of the briefs that he gave. And that brief was known as the conceptual spiral, right? Uh, okay. He wanted to name it No Way Out and then he changed it for whatever reason. But he identified features of the world that we just can't avoid, that we just can't eliminate. So uh, he identified these features as uncertainty, entropy, uh, mutations, ambiguity, novelty, irregular or erratic behavior, quantum uncertainty, numerical imprecision, and then uh, uh, being something being incomprehensible, right? So, so those are some of the basic features you said. We just can't eliminate these things. There's no way out. But the truth is there is a way out. There's a, the way out is through these things and adapting to them, learning about them, right? So it's a kind of a play off of that. It's there's no way out unless you do this reorientation, unless you change your paradigms, unless you go out and learn. You have to go out and get, get this. You have to um, actively engage with your environment, right? That's what he was getting at is you have to do something. You can't just be passive about it. Large yeah. language models, right? <laughs> Large language models are kind of passive. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so that's what he was getting at with the no way out, um, idea, but he changed it to the conceptual spiral. Uh, and that was a paradigm for survival and growth. That's a, a brief he gave in about 1992. That's a lot less fun of a title. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But you know, some people look at it and I, I, I'm a little nervous about the name too, cause it's not like, it, it's not to go, it's not about suicide or anything like that. It, I, I get some people are like, well, that's that's not a great title. Well, there's really no way out. You have to go through these things. You have right. to adapt to your environment. You have well, to accept you can't saying change. No way out, but through, right? I mean, but that's exactly yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah, that's yeah. it. That's it. Yeah. So that that's the uh, idea the, behind the podcast. Uh, the way we came up with the name, Mark um, McGrath and I were in the uh, archives at Quantico. And we came across the paper that said no way out. And we're like, what the heck is this? And, and we found out later it's the conceptual spiral. But the moment we picked up that paper, we're like, that's the name of the podcast right there. No way out. Yeah. Very cool. Very mm -hmm. cool. So um, now I've heard you talk about the VUCA world, you mm -hmm. know, what, why don't you explain that a little bit? Because I think that's going to play into what we're about to discuss as well. Yeah, it's just a way to describe the external environment. Uh, it's just, uh, I can't remember how many years this goes back into the U.S. Army and the War College, but somebody called it VUCA, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, right? Today, a lot of people are on LinkedIn going back and forth saying it's Banny, it's Banana, it's Chocolate World. I'm like, I don't care. I don't care what you call the external world as long as you look at it and try to do something about it. because. Yeah. You know, people get fixated like it's, it's got to be this, it's got to be that. I'm like, I, I don't care. You know, you call it what you want. But VUCA, uh, years ago when I started off in Agile, coaching Agile teams, we used it. We got laughed at. Today, it's about everywhere. All right, everybody's using the term VUCA to describe the the amount of change in the environment, the external environment. That's what it's about. It's not a model. People have tried to use it as a model to explain reality and all that. I'm like, okay, well, good job. And that's what pseudoscience is all about, right? Is just making things up and trying to sell things for, to people. Well, I'm not about that. Yeah. 
No. So, um, so how does all this play into your consulting business? Like what, what, what do you do? You, you go out to companies and you're helping them to do what? We're helping them do the things they don't want to do, but they have to do, right? Okay. There's no way out. There's no way out, right? Basic, uh, <laughs> seriously, there's, well, we may talk about this in a few minutes, I'm sure, but that's, uh, it's human nature to be lazy. We, we, we like, we're pattern matching beans and there's, Again, we'll talk about that a little bit later on. So in organizations, it's a lot easier to go after the blue pill than it is the red pill, right? Um, everybody wants a fast answer to doing something. So what we have to show them is through the flow system and through what we call high performance teaming, uh, we show them how, a little bit about human factors, what, what makes us human, what makes us different than ants and data processors, uh, the way we perceive reality. And we show them that through John Boyd's OODA loop and we give them the context stuff through the Kadevan framework. And we also have other tools that we can use with them, uh, red teaming tools to help them mitigate cognitive biases and enable critical thinking. We give them these things, um, you know, so they can create psychological safety, they can leverage cognitive diversity, they can build on their DEI program, they can do all the things they say they're doing, but they're not actually doing. We give them those tools and those techniques. Generally, what happens after three or three months with us, they or their initial engagement with us, they go, well, you're the only people saying this. We're going to go over here where everybody else is saying the same thing, you know? So um, great. You're going after the pseudoscience. We're giving you the science. We're giving you the uh, praxis-based approaches to scaling agility, innovation, safety, and resilience. Uh, you know, the theories are there. The, the science is there. Everybody talks about, you know, settled science or set science, and this is right. But when it comes to human performance and things like that, people run away. Why? It's human nature. We're lazy. We don't want to put in the work. I have kids. I know it, what it looks like to see them practice basketball. Um, they don't like doing the work. It, it's just, yeah. it's human nature, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. We 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 kind of disrupt organizations. Quiet quitting. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So we disrupt organizations through showing them things that actually scale, right? Remember what Jeff Sullivan said is you need to go out there and start a company that stomps out all the bad Scrum and Agile. Well, that's that's how you do it. Is you actually have to focus on the interactions, right? It's the interactions, the quality of the behaviors, relationships. And again, I think there's another connection to the spatial web there we might touch on a little bit later on, right? It's about the relationships. It's not about the uh, the objects themselves. So um, that's a hard pill to swallow when you get into organizations because the majority of pseudoscience leadership and teamwork approaches are not about fixing the interactions, right? They're about telling you how awesome you are already are, that you should continue to do this. We're going to label that. We're going to put this PowerPoint up. We're going to put these, you know, eagles yeah. soaring over mountains and, and ponds and uh, platitudes underneath it and, and just sell you on this nonsense. And that's what people like. So um, not everybody wants to work with us because nobody wants, not everybody wants to put in the work. Yeah. So you mentioned something that uh, I'm curious about you, psychological safety. What is that? Yeah. Uh, it's a big term that was thrown around about seven, eight years ago. It's, it's pretty big today. It's really the ability to bring your full self to work, to stand up and say, um, if you see a weak signal, you can, you can raise your hand and say, this is what's happening, right? If you're not, if you don't feel psychologically safe, you're probably going to hold information back, right? So the way you create psychological safety is through leadership, uh, creating the right environment. It's not, you know, a closed door or open door policy doesn't create psychological safety. Red teaming does not create psychological safety. Um, leaders' actions actually do. So uh, how you respond to failure as a leader matters. That comes from the human and organizational performance, uh, which, which is known as HOP. It's a principle of HOP. Um, how you do that matters, right? So I give a great example of this uh, from my home. Uh, my daughters are 13 and 12 right now. 
Um, how I respond to failure matters. Now pay attention to this. This will be kind of fun. How I respond to their first boyfriend coming over will determine if I ever get to meet the second one, right? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, so think about that. that. That's some basic psychology. So in an environment as a leader, I need to be able to respond to failure and success, right? Mainly failure. How do I respond to that? Because I want my people, when there is a failure, I want to know about it. I don't want to punish them necessarily. Uh, other ways to create psychological safety is through the arts of feedback loops, debriefing, right? Um, as a leader, you can create psychological safety by showing vulnerability, fallibility, standing up in front of people and saying, over the last couple of days or hours or whatever the time we've been together, I said this and I failed you. I did this, I failed you. What that does is it um, lowers the ego in a room, right? Mm -hmm. So you can get to more novelty and people are more likely to speak up. So there's a lot of awesome research by Amy Edmondson out of uh, uh, out of Harvard, who's, who's done a lot of work on this and the concept of teaming. Uh, so we're closely connected to teaming and teamwork and psychological safety and everything we do. But uh, that's that's an important feedback uh, feature of any team organization. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned vulnerability, because that's something that I've known for a while. There's two definite ways to make human connection with another human being to actually your brain it, it'll cause your brain to put out the chemicals that cause that mm -hmm. connection yep. I don't know if it's oxytocin or, or which yeah. chemical but one of them is vulnerability and then one of them is fight or flight right you know yep. the ship's going down we're we're best friends we're all in it together right you mm -hmm. know survival but yeah. vulnerability. And to me, it's like, that's why somebody like Jennifer Lawrence can trip on the red carpet. And the next yeah. day she's, you know, America's sweetheart because she's human, you yeah. know, it's, it's showing that, that human vulnerability. I yeah. actually knew somebody who I, I remember telling, uh, one of my friends that a, a long time ago, and he's like, yep, every time I go to speak, I accidentally drop something as I'm heading towards the microphone. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Get down and do a push up and then look like really cool. Yeah, yeah, you can do that. Yeah, no, it, it works. Uh, and, and many, again, a lot of this came from my, my experience in the military. I'm not saying psychological safety came from my experience. I'm saying our culture in the military, in fighter aviation, we had a culture of debriefing, right? This just happened. We were taught how to do these things. Uh, nobody sat down and said, this is how you do it. What we had to do is break this down through cognitive task analysis and go, this is how you do it. And by the way, the research supports that. So when we talk about effective debriefing, a very the most important feedback loop inside of a team, um, we put we we demonstrate to leaders how to create or potentially create psychological safety through vulnerability and fallibility. So it's it's very powerful. The same thing is true with planning too. You, as a leader, you have to provide good intent. You have to ask great questions. Uh, again, a lot of this is in in the uh, in the flow system book. Um, but yeah, that's that's a, a critical aspect of what we do. So let me ask you, because uh, you reached out to me uh, probably like a month or more ago now, um, maybe a month and a half. And you had uh, you you saw some of the content and the work I was doing around active inference AI and and the free energy principle and the spatial web, mm -hmm. and uh, you drew a connection to the OODA loop. Um, had you already been drawing the connection with the so? Tell me, tell me what that connection is. Tell me, tell me what uh, what excites you about that. Uh, I'm going to go, we're going to go a little bit into woo land, uh, if you will. So it, it, it's not woo land. I, let me, let me rephrase this. Um, 
I grew up in Colorado, I went to the University of Colorado, I drank beer, you know, there's, there's a lot of psychedelics around there and things like that. I did not approve of that. Uh, so the, the war on drugs uh, over the years, over our, you know, being a child growing up, here's, here's your brain, your brain on drugs, all those things are just, you know, part of your DNA now, right? You just don't even think about psychedelics. Uh, that changed about four years ago or three years ago now, uh, when some of my friends who are fighter pilots uh, went down to Mexico and they got help for their PTSD and TBI, uh, traumatic brain injury. And there, there are some famous SEALs in there as well. Marcus Luttrell was one of them. Uh, anyway, I got a back brief from um, Wiz, uh, Wiz's call sign. And uh, I was just shocked to hear that here's a person that was one of my mentors when I was transitioning out of the military who went down to Mexico and went through psychedelic assisted therapies and then came back basically a, a different human being, a, a better version of himself, let me say it that. Um, I called up one of my buddies, sent him uh, the brief, and he said, when are we going? And I said, dude, I can't. I'm still in the reserve. I can't I can't go. But we found him money. Uh, we got him down to Mexico and he came back. Uh, the VA had put him on benzo, diazepines, you know, they, they all kinds of bad things on, you know. Yeah. Uh, so he was struggling quite a bit. Anyway, um, psychedelic assisted therapies, I started diving into books. Uh, Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind. Uh, that led me to Robin Carhart Harris's work on Rebus, Reduced Beliefs Under Psychedelics. Uh, and the entropic brain hypothesis. That led me to Carl Friston, right? So I'm looking at all this stuff like, wait, I've seen this stuff before. And, and I start mapping it out and playing with things. And uh, what I have behind me is a little bit uh, of, of that version of that, uh, of the OODA loop. But uh, it was through psychedelic assisted therapies, learning about them, reading about them, and understanding what's going on in the brain with neuroplasticity and all that, yeah. and seeing the free energy principle and active inference, I start <laughs> scratching my head quite a bit. Uh, so I actually have a document I wrote about two years ago. I haven't published it. It's right now 48 pages long. It's it's a it's a solid connection between John Boyd's OODA loop and what what is I know now to be active inference and the free energy principle. There's uh, more connected to uh, Robin Carhart Harris's work. Uh, Can you talk so, a little bit more in detail about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll we'll dive into that on okay. the connections here. That's pretty cool. Um, so the idea is with psychedelics, it's like a snow globe, right? It, it shakes up the snow globe and it, it kind of gives you access to more novelty, right? So let's go back to psychological safety. Um, we want to remove ego in an organization. Psychological safety relaxes the ego in an organization or the default mode of operating in a, in a, a top-down command and control organization. The same thing is true in your brain. When you're using a modality such as prayer, um, meditation, psychedelic assisted therapy, you relax in that ego, the default mode way of operating, and you gain access to higher entropy or higher novelty, right? And that allows you to reconnect things so you can remember things a little bit differently and see them from different perspectives. And right. that changes Neural what we, yeah, yeah. So it changes your internal map of the external world, right? So that's what's going on with, with uh, that piece. Um, and the connection really was about the, the feedback loops in the OODA loop, which we can cover here in a moment, but two of the feedback loops that are in the OODA loop go from decide or prediction back to observation, which is really our sensory organs, right? Mm -hmm. um, that is the Bayesian inference or predictive processing or, or what we now know as uh, surprise minimization. How do we minimize surprise? That's the first feedback loop that goes observe, orient, decide, which is also prediction. A prediction is a decision goes back to observation. 
Okay. And that's internal to an organism. So think about our brain or our mind or whatever you want to think of. That's still internal to that system. Yeah. There's an, there's another feedback loop that goes from act. Um, and it goes from act back towards observation. And again, that's internal to the system. And I learned this from Daniel Friedman. They call that a covert um, feedback loop. It's covert. It's still inside your system. It's a planning. It's a counterfactual. It's a what if. That's what's going to help you rewire the brain. What if I think about this? What if I do this? What if I close my eyes? What if I uh, start listening a little bit better? What if I do these things? Right. So that's still internal to um, uh, the boundary. It's still inside of a boundary. And, yeah. and that's that's already drawn inside Boyd's OODA loop. And of course, uh, there's two other pathways that are very, very important in there. And that's implicit guidance control. One of the IGNC pathways, which moves from Orient, which is the internal model of the external world, the IGNC pathway that goes from Orient back to observe, if you will, is our schema, our mental models, our repertoire of the world. It's, it's our ego. It's how we perceive reality. It's already built in. And you also have another IGNC pathway, which bypasses decision or prediction or hypothesis. It's an autonomic response, right? It's just, you know, how do I dribble a ball if I know how to dribble a ball? Or, you know, how do I shoot? It, that's, that's how you get in a state of flow, actually. So uh, there's a lot to unpack there, but the overlap between what we saw with Rebus and Tropic Brain hypothesis, um, and by the way, that led me to reach out to uh, Ines Hippolito, Dr. Hippolito, to have her on our podcast early to talk about this. And I got to spend about an hour and a half to two hours with her uh, back in 2022. Um, you know, just asked her to spend some time with me to make sure I'm not crazy. And <laughs> she hasn't talked to me since, no, I'm kidding. Um, she, she really helped me out in understanding that, you know, the free energy principle built, um, uh, which is now, let me grab this book here. Uh, and that was before I got this book here, right? The Active Inference uh, book, the free energy principle in mind, brain and behavior. So um, she helped me out, understand that a little bit more, and that validated what I had in my paper. I gave my paper to some um, psychiatrists and psycho psychologists who are in the um, psychedelic assisted therapy space and happen to have a background in the military, and they were blown away to see the connection. And we could talk about that connection through uh, going back through Boyd's work if you want to do that. Yeah. So I'm actually really fascinated by that because, you know... Um, all of the all of the research that is coming out, you know, unfortunately, because of that war on drugs, the research stopped when it came to psychedelics, you know, but it's fascinating to me to see all the research coming out uh, over the last, you know, handful or so of years. And, you know, just the, the idea of being able to maintain neuroplasticity, because as you age that, you know, it's like your brain sets, you know, and, and you, you know, to be able to have the level of neuroplasticity of like a child or a, a, a growing and evolving where things are a discovery, things are, you know, you're open. Um, that to me is really important. That's important for learning and evolving. And I see that that actually has a lot of value, obviously in overcoming trauma yeah. or, you know, uh, you know, any, anything that would cause like PTSD, but mm -hmm. also in such a fast paced world that we're in, that's changing so quickly and so rapidly yeah. with all this new information for us to absorb and adapt to, um, you know, I see that there's value in that as well. Um, so maybe you could speak to that a little bit. 
Yeah, I want to build on that. So you brought up new information. Uh, and, and to me, new information is surprise. It's mismatches, right? It's it's you you have the opportunity to accept that new information or suppress it, right? You can you can adapt to it or you can try to change the external world. Um uh, sometimes people other people make that choice for us where they suppress it, hide it, they cancel you. Um, they'll do something to prevent the flow of information getting to you. So that that new information to me is the surprise in the environment, right? So with that knowledge, new information uh, from the lens of information warfare, uh, information warfare is all about the control of that flow of information, all right? So I can use narrative, I can use uh, suppression, cancel you, block you, uh, give you a low social credit score, whatever, you know, I can do all these things to you to reduce your access to surprise, by the way. Yeah, and, and yeah, yeah. And, and you can, and you as an individual, remember what I said earlier, humans don't like to, uh, we don't like, we're naturally lazy, right? So right. sometimes we like to remain in a stuck state. Sometimes we don't want it to, we don't want that new information because it, it's going to force us to change our internal model. Okay, so new information is absolutely critical in what we call orientation. Orientation inside John Boyd's OODA loop is known as the Schwerpunkt. It's the most important piece of the OODA loop. It determines how you make sense of the world, how you decide, and how you act, right? So perception, action loop, all that stuff that we may talk about, it's critical that. It's your internal model of the external world. We can get into affordances. We can get into Aspie's requisite variety and all that stuff from this. Uh, we'll just kind of keep it simple. So new information is equal to surprise coming in from the external world, Okay. But there's a couple of other components inside orientation. Uh, there's something known as synthesis and analysis. It's just to go through the process of breaking things down or creating snowmobiles, you know, building things up and creating something new. That's a simple process, if you will. We'll, we'll kind of park that one for a while. There's three other components in there. Uh, one is genetics or genetic heritage, cultural traditions, and then previous experience. Okay, so previous experiences could be things like what you had for dinner, what you had for breakfast, how much sleep you got. Did you experience something traumatic when you were a kid? Did you experience experiencing something that created trauma as an adult? Um, it could be education, it could be so many things. Previous experience is critical in that orientation. So that blends with new information, goes through synthesis and analysis, and that helps you determine your external world. Culture, culture could be anything from uh, the type of games you play as a kid. If you play chess, play uh, uh, poker as a kid or as an adult, Maybe you play the game of Go, right? Uh, it just depends on your culture, where you are, uh, and how you're raised as a child. You know who raises your aunts and uncles, things like that. The language, the stories you hear as a child. Uh, so the culture, basic culture there. And the other component is genetic heritage. And you can think of genetic heritage as all those things that make us human, from the biology, the you know the, the, the DNA structures, the DNAs, we, the DNA we get from our or inherit from our parents. Um, and you can also think about basic human factors or human biology, human psychology, right? So let's start with something simple. 2% um, of our body weight is burning 20% of our energy, right? So our brain is a very expensive organ. This goes back to what creates or makes us lazy as humans, right? We like heuristics. We like shortcuts. We like to these biases, if you will, these cognitive biases, if you will. They, they, they help keep us alive, by the way. They're not good or bad. They just are. And you can't eliminate cognitive biases. Anybody who tells you you can, uh, run away from them, all right? We're not here to eliminate cognitive biases. We can mitigate them and things like that. So 2% of our body weight's burning 20% our energy. That's our brain. Uh, humans are pattern matching beings. And uh, let, me, let me try this with you. I'm going to try to share something on the screen with you. And I want you just to read it out. Uh, okay. Hopefully this works real fast. Uh, <clears throat> coming up here. Did it come up? No. 
There it is. Just read that out loud. Okay. Intelligence is the ability to adapt to change. <laughs> okay. So so Denise is looking at not those words, but she's looking at one N73 LL, one G3 NCE, right? So right. what's happening here is your pattern matching. And for those of you who like going into um um where do I, where do I get this from? Jimmy John's. Uh, this is this is actually inside Jimmy John's. If you want to read that, or I can read that for you. Uh, it says, according to research at Cambridge University, it doesn't matter in what order the letters in a word are. The only important thing is that the first and last letter be at the right place. Okay, just to tell everybody what, what I'm reading, all these letters are all mixed up, right, Denise? Yeah, oh, the rest okay. is a total mess. <laughs> it's, a to it's a total mess. So go into your Jimmy John's, you'll find this picture in there. I found it here. I've been training this to organizations for a while. So what does that mean? This goes back to the genetic heritage. Humans are pattern matching beings, right? We pattern match. Uh, and, and like I said, we have these other biases. Um, we have things like inattentional blindness. We only see what we expect to see. So genetic heritage, cultural traditions, previous experience, new information or surprise that's coming in, goes through a process of synthesis analysis. And that actually generates a prediction about the sensory signals coming in from our observations or sensory organs, right? So see how that all works? That's yeah. what John Boyd gave us many, many years ago. He said, hey, let's look at quantum physics, biology, neuroscience, all this other stuff. And he fuses together and said, that's what orientation is about, right? So that overlap is already there inside of John Boyd's OODA loop. Um, I think where we went wrong with the OODA loop is many people drew it as a passive loop, where what I mean by that is uh, it's just observe, orient, decide, act, right? It, it, it didn't have any of the active loops in it, if you will, yeah. right? And that's that's generally what's going on with large language models and other things is most people think of the world as a passive, we, we observe the world passively, which we don't. We actively engage with the world to create our reality, right? And right. that's what active inference tells us. And that's what John Boyd's OODA loop tells us. So um, there's, a you know, that's, that's that feedback loop I was talking about earlier, that predictive processing, minim, uh, surprise minimization, and all that. And let's go back to the stuck state piece, right? We could, um, humans seek to maximize information that uh, conforms to their internal model already, right? Um, mm -hmm. Or we we seek to minimize surprise, right? Depending on how you, do, how you look at it from internally or externally. Yeah. Um, but that's that's what we want to do. We want to max. Yeah, we want to minimize surprise or maximize evidence for our own model. So if you think about what's going on in the world today, social media and all these other things, they're targeting your biases already. They know what you already like, and they're going to continue to feed that information to you, which yeah. allows you to stay in your stuck state. So if I come in with surprising information, and you've been hearing this the whole time, let's go back to what we do as a consultant. We're coming in with surprising information, right? We're going to show you something that you never seen before. They're not going to listen to it because that's not what their world model is, right? They've been told by McKinsey and uh, all these other ex very expensive organizations that you just need a 24-year-old 24, 24 MBA student to come in here and tell you what you already know, right? You know, okay. <laughs> it's, so, it's so interesting that you say that because... You know, I've been I've been writing about the spatial web and uh, you know active inference AI and the free energy principle now for uh, just about a year, and um, you know in in really in preparation uh, for you know what versus AI is launching uh, later this year. You know, and to me, I saw that it was necessary. There's a there's a transition and there's a mindset transition because of what yeah. you're talking about. You know, people people are. Are not you know they're, they're pretty resistant to change 
And what's really interesting is I have a lot of people in my network that are, you know, um, into AI, you know, doing all mm-hmm. kinds of stuff with within the space and everything else. And it's like they see what I'm ta- they see what I'm saying, and they see what the the content that I'm putting out, and they're not like they're not coming up against it, but they're it's almost like you can, I can feel them like scooting it out from what they're focused on because all they're focused on is the machine learning, the deep learning, and this is totally different. And, and it doesn't fit in with their model of what they know AI to be. So they don't know what to do with it. Like, so, so they're just kind of like ignoring it. (laughs) No, it's spot on. So one of the things we've been trying to do is how do you get the attention of leaders and organizations in the first 10 or 15 minutes? And that example I gave you from Jimmy John's and, and intelligence thing, those are a couple examples we can provide, right? So we can actually come in and use those human factors, uh, some other things that we have. And I think I showed one to you last time. Um, and we explain to folks what's actually going on, not just in their brain, but how they're making sense of reality. And then once they understand that, they're like, wait a minute. So reality or my perception of reality is a controlled hallucination. You're like, yeah, it's constructed top down, inside out, right? It, you're not experiencing the world uh, for what it is, you're experiencing the world uh, for what it is inside your brain from your advantage point, right? From your orientation. And we all are, right? So that idea that if we go look at a rainbow, if we're a couple of feet away from each other, the rainbow is different everywhere, right? It's not the same rainbow. Right. Even though we're all looking at a rainbow over there, we all see it differently. Kind of crazy, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so through that, we can help people understand how, uh, I guess, uh, biological creatures or humans perceive reality, which leads us to active inference. We don't have to talk about active inference. We don't have to talk about free energy principle. We can just demonstrate it, draw it out on a board. And what emerges, you get the OODA loop. And they're like, what's that? And they're like, well, that's John Boyd's OODA loop. This is where you, what agility is based off of. This is what uh, Scrum is based off. You know, This is what big data, cybersecurity, disinformation, misinformation, all these other things that people are talking about, the lean startup, all these things are built on. So wouldn't you want to know how what, what's behind that? And, and, and that's pretty cool. And I think that could lead to leaders and even uh, people in the tech field understand active inference AI better is if they understand what we're talking about. Because if I draw the passive OODA loop, which is observe, orient, decide, act, and maybe a connection to the external world, that's a large language model, right? It doesn't, there's no any, nothing active in it. And if we draw the OODA loop, that's actually active inference AI, a simplified version of it without getting into the maths behind um, uh, the free energy principle and and AI or active inference. So let me ask you, Brian, what what excites you about active inference AI and the spatial web, you know, in relation Mm -hmm. to like your life, uh, you know, your work, um, you know, where what what do you see? how do you see it impacting you personally for the future? Okay, uh, I, I'm going to try this. I don't know if it's going to work, but so my daughters are learning how to play basketball. So they have a technical skills coach, right? They don't have a, a they have other coaches too. So technical skills training, what, what's required? They need a feedback loop, a rapid feedback loop. So what do I want? As an adult parent, uh, I don't have access to coaches all the time. I do see my daughter play basketball. She needs to see how she's shooting the basketball. So how do I do that? Well, I need a camera that can track her. Okay, well, how do we, there are a lot of cameras out there that can do that. I need a tracker, a camera that can track her in a group of people. Uh, that's a different problem, right? So, you know, facial recognition, all that, turn your back. Um, is that camera going to stay focused on her or not? So I need a way to track her if it's a device or whatever. And I also need a way for something to take 
great, good lessons, good lessons from good coaches and synthesize that. And then when that feedback or that video gets pushed into something almost live, it, it could, it's going to come in. I don't think it's going to be a large language model, by the way, it could be, um, but that information could get passed back to my daughter on, Hey, uh, you push too hard with your shoulder or not enough wrist oh. or, you know, all these things. So how do you get, how do you close that feedback loop? And the same thing could be true in an organization. How do you close the feedback loop when a team is working together? And, and I'm going to give you some, uh, a little secret. Teamwork is observable. Therefore it's measurable, right? So if you understand teamwork, you can identify those things that good teams do and bad teams do, and you can kind of build a rubric around it. Well, you can use uh, maybe an LLM again, or, or active inference AI to do this, but you want to be able to give people rapid feedback, right? So how do I reduce the, the need for organizations to pay for high-end coaches while providing a capability that is, a, you know, um, like, like I said, I don't know if it's an LLM or active inference AI, some type of machine learning or AI capability that can provide feedback to people about how they're actually interacting with each other, right? Uh, and so they can improve it for themselves in the future. So all these things are possible. Uh, I do believe uh, active inference is going to have a little bit more to do with disparate data sources, mm -hmm. meaning, um, again, focus on the, the interactions. And, and uh, uh, so when I'm looking around and seeing what an LLM can do, a chat GPT-4 can do, um, it can't do a lot. I mean, it get, it, people get excited about it. I'm like, great. I'm, I'm so glad I'm reading your LinkedIn post on a book you read uh, that you put a bunch of stuff in there. I'm not going to read it, right? I'm, I'm not excited about that. Uh, so, but there are some pretty good things about large language models that we can use today. Uh, I just think with active inference, you start building that adaptable capability, which kind of mirrors or mimics what humans do. That's fascinating and terrifying. Um, but I think with the right ethics and all that, uh, it's going to be more fascinating and terrifying. Yeah. And, you know, uh, to that point, that's one of the advantages to me of the spatial web protocol is mm -hmm. that, you know, security is baked into the protocol. Yeah. And, um, you know, through the HSTP and through the HSML, you know, they've already like uh, proven the concept with the, the drone project that mm -hmm. versus AI has been doing in Europe. Um, <clears throat> because with the protocol, you can actually take human law and make it computable and understandable by the AI. So then the AI abides by that law. So it's programmable AI in the way that is not that way with these machine models. You know, they're very yeah. opaque in the way they're they're actually performing, you know. Yeah. So um, so that to me is one of the most fascinating parts of this because the through the active inference AI, you can also get explainable AI, AI that can be introspective report on itself, uh, you know, on how it's coming to its, its um, decision making, you yeah. know, and, and so when you have those components with AI, you have a lot more, the, the AI itself is controllable, predictable, you know, transparent. So then when you're taking it, and you're putting it in this networked environment, where it can actually perceive the world through sensors, mm -hmm. cameras, you know, yeah. different inputs, plus you've got the context that's being baked into it to inform it of relationships between everything within the network and all those other things, then you can create these systems like you're talking about where it, it actually can take real-time information and make sense of it and, yeah. you know, give you insights that, you know, otherwise you wouldn't be able to get. 
Yeah, I think uh, something like this coupled with human performance uh, capabilities, it, it could be, you know, diet or, or training. Uh, it could yeah. be some type of, uh, I, I don't know what, what, what's going to happen to humans in the future, but now you got AI working in sports teams where these players already know how well they can function in, in two or three days if they eat this food and do this and this amount of sleep. If you could start to do that, then the games change. I mean, the, the, the competition yeah. levels go up. Right. And now you have AI helping humans accelerate human performance. And I think that's that's what fascinates me about this is at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is accelerate human performance in organizations. Technology just happens to give us one uh, another advantage point or vantage point to, to do it with. Right. Total optimization. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 And and I mean, there's some downsides to this to these, this thinking, too. You have. Uh, um, you know, cognitive warfare, the battle space for the 21st century is the brain. Right. Uh, it's it's uh, there's a couple of sayings that John Boyd brought. You know, this should be pretty are, are well known. Number one is um, machines don't fight wars; humans do, and they use their mind. Right? They use their brains. Uh, people, ideas, and things in that order. Right? So it's always the human in the center is is so critical. Cognitive warfare is going after our brains, uh, our minds, the way we think, and uh, going after those biases, those things we talked about earlier. I with with the right. Um, just call it laws and ethics written into this. I think we have a pretty good chance to do some amazing things as a human race, right? Without those constraints, uh, those, those <laughs> smart constraints, good constraints, evolving constraints, whatever they may be, where humans have to be part of that system, uh, that's that, that could be a little dangerous without them. And then if you get a nefarious actor um, that that has something, um, you know, maybe active inference AI could be weaponized, but I mean, that somebody's going to do that too, right? So we we have to figure out how to evolve um, uh, our our defenses against that, which which yeah. is one of the things we want to do. To me, one of the one of the things that's uh, kind of advantageous, you know, about the way this has been structured is the decentralized aspect of it. Yeah. You know? yeah. So yeah. that in itself can act as a guardrail <clears throat> against yeah. bad actors. You know, yeah. um, so, you know, I feel like it's interesting because I feel like the the components that are all coming together and the technologies mm -hmm. that are all coming together, uh, you know, to create this unified system, I feel like they've been well thought out and they're, they're yeah. you yeah. know. Yeah, I mean, we can't think through everything. There's going to be something right. that somebody hasn't thought of, and and you know, from the from for example, in the cockpit, you know, fighter, not just fighter, commercial airlines over the years, we've learned that it's not always the um, the machine that fails; it's the human in the cockpit, right? the way we communicate, the way we work those teams, eighty percent roughly, and I think ninety percent of uh, is it, um, accidents on the road are caused by humans. Yeah, no kidding, because we're driving the car, right? So it's an open system. <laughs> You put it. You put we're a human in a car. Yeah, yeah you, you put a human in a car. It's still an open system, even though the car is a closed system. You have an open system working. Right. Uh, and the same thing, you know, it could be true with uh, active inference AI. Is uh, is it a closed system, or, is, or are humans still involved? And if humans are putting input into it, we're, we're open systems, meaning we're not perfect, and neither are the machines we make. Right. And we're never going to be right. able to think through all the potential um, safety failures or, or whatever, or even successes that are, are going to be behind it. So yeah, I think uh, what I've read about spatial web AI or the spatial web protocol and understanding about the semantic web and then learning more about the category theory and things like that. We have some very intelligent people working on that who are, who favor the human race. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
You, you've mentioned category theory a few times. So, um, you know, would you explain that a little bit, your understanding of that? Oh, my gosh. Uh, I'll, I'll give it a shot. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so on our podcast soon, we'll have uh, Brandon Baylor and Esteban Montero, uh, who talk about their journey through safety sciences and learning about category theory and what it's really about. So it's it's about the relationships between um, disparate data. I'm going to pull some ideas from them and from my wife. W what I understand about data sources is um, you have data structure, data structures that are different, right? Um, and they have context. And then there's context over in this data structure or data approach or this museum or, or this company over here. Um, you want to keep the context the way it is. You want to keep it contextual. So you have to focus on the relationships between them. And that's what category theory does, I believe. Um, uh, and there might be some math behind that. Uh, so it's the relationships between the data that matters, not the data itself. Um, the data is important. Um, my mom, my, I said my mom, I can't believe that. Uh, my, my wife, um, she's doing a lot of uh, data curation work uh, right now. And the, what I understand from her is linked open data uh, is okay. It, it's, uh, the problem with that is you have a human in the system that may not understand the context of the data uh, and they're giving it labels and things like that. Um, what we wanna do is we wanna keep that context rich with that data um, without interpreting it, if you will. And we wanna focus on the interactions. And, and that's, that's key there. Uh, and I think that's what, you know, that's what I understand category theory going, uh, the direction it's going is to focus on the interactions, which are built on complex adaptive system theory, which is about the interactions again, right? The quality of interactions, you get emergent properties, decentralized control, all the things you brought up, all these things that CAS tell, tell us about how um, uh, systems potentially should work uh, going forward. Very cool. Well, gosh, you know, I feel like I could just talk to you forever, but I know. Yeah, I, 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 don't know the, I don't know. If, so I, somebody's going to go, hey, you know, you, you listen to category theory, you read some stuff. I got a book back here on it. Uh, I'm still learning about it. Um, uh, <laughs> and I talked, I talked to Daniel Friedman about it. And he, he, uh, they had somebody on Active Inference Institute do a lot of math. And, you know, I looked at it, I was like, oh my gosh, there's math involved. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, well, okay, so um, do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with our audience? Um, no, no, it's exciting time right now. Um, right now is a time to get in and, and learn about what makes us humans, uh, what makes us a human. Um, it's a great time to learn about active inference, you know, find something that works. If it's Active Inference Institute, uh, if it's uh, getting on Spatial Web uh, on Tuesdays with you, reading your posts, looking at the, the flow system, looking at John Boyd's OODA loop, joining the No Way Out podcast, find something that you can learn from that changes the way you view the world. You have to do this right now. It is, there's no way out, right? Right. <laughs> Let's go through. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for being here. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Brian Ponch Rivera, um, you, I hope you come back to our show very soon. I hope so too. This is a lot of fun. Um, you know, going back to when we started, I have no idea what's going to come out of my mouth today. I'm glad we did it. I learned a lot too. Yeah, me too. Uh, well, thank you so much. And thanks for joining us today, guys. Uh, we'll see you. We'll see you next time.